Hi there, and welcome to this podcast for the Individual Differences and Abnormal Psychology Master's Module at Arden University. This is your lecturer, Rachel Marchant, bringing you a weekly update for lesson 6 to 10 in the form of a short podcast. Each week, I will give a brief update to that week's corresponding lesson. So, at the end of week 6, I will provide a summary of the week 6 content and discussion, and so on. I will also discuss some extra resources related to the week's topics that you might find interesting. I hope you enjoyed my co-lecturer Beth McManus's excellent podcast for weeks one to five. So let's go over this week's comments, queries and discussion. This week on the IDAP module, lesson six covered some historical and conceptual issues of abnormality. This includes some of the most influential schools of thought in psychology that can be related to the study of abnormality as well as different perspectives such as biological, cognitive and social models and explanations. The biological perspective focuses on biological causes or mechanisms of behaviour and our mental states. In recent years, our progress with neuroscience has led to heightened focus on neural causes, such as neurotransmitter balances in the brain. Although neuroscientific research and explanations have given the impression of great progress in this area, The reality is, is that we are only just beginning to understand the huge complexities of the brain. As I discussed in the fourth live teaching session on abnormality and psychopathology, there are some key issues with the biological or medical approach to mental health. For example, we don't actually have a lot of good evidence to support the idea that chemical imbalances directly cause low mood. This approach also places the cause of mental health struggles within the individual, whilst ignoring social and environmental contexts. If you're interested in reading more about this topic and about wider concerns with the medical psychiatric approach and system, I would encourage you to read the excellent book called Cracked, written by Dr. James Davies. This book is available to you for free through the Palega Library. I would also recommend the Rethinking Mental Illness podcast episode, Rethinking Biological Psychiatry, with Jim Van Oss, which I will link to in the forum where this episode is posted. I also included lots of additional reading on these topics in the slides for live session four, so please do go and have a look at those if you would like more information. In contrast to the biological model, psychosocial models emphasise the importance of context and environment in our mental health. This model focuses on analysing barriers that people might face in their own context, rather than on biological or chemical imbalances or dysfunctions in the brain and body. Although this approach is more holistic and accounts of the important influences that our individual contexts have on our psychology, it can be difficult to connect this level of description with biological ideas and changes. If you would like to read more about the integration of biology, psychology and sociology in models of mental health and alternative models, I would recommend the Rethinking Mental Illness podcast episodes with Johan Harry on Lost Connections and with Lucy Johnston on the Power Threat Meaning Framework. Some other great podcasts on mental health are All in the Mind from BBC Radio 4 and Psychiatry and Psychotherapy. I will provide links to all of these in the forum where this episode is posted. Now, let's move on to reflecting on some of the activities and discussions from this week's lesson discussion forum. This week in the discussion forum, we asked you to think about the creation of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, also known as the DSM. 
The DSM was first published in 1952 and has been through a number of revisions since and is now in its fifth revised edition. We asked you to reflect on whether the creation of the DSM was scientifically rigorous and whether the DSM is a reliable diagnostic tool. We had some great discussion in the forums on this with lots of posts from students, so thank you very much to everyone who's contributed to the discussion so far. There was some discussion around whether the DSM categories and criteria were decided upon by experts or experts plus members of the community with a vested interest, such as those with lived experience. The answer to this depends on what iteration of the DSM we look at. However, if you'd like to read more about this, the group involved in revising the DSM are called the DSM Task Force. This group usually includes psychiatrists, psychologists and other academics with relevant expertise, and they are appointed by the American Psychiatric Association. When the DSM-5 was being produced, the proposed revisions that had already been drafted by the panel members were actually made available to the public for the first time in the DSM's history. Despite this opportunity, which did technically allow for those with lived experience to comment, the previous DSM panel chair, Robert Spitzer, commented that the process was not transparent enough and remained highly exclusive. Despite a report from the APA stating that over 11,000 comments were received, it's not clear how helpful this process was and whether it affected any significant changes in the drafts. I will provide a link to this report in the discussion forum. Another article by Sisti and Johnson commented that there was need for more transparent revision processes that recruited diverse members of the public and those of vested interest, and for more variety in the expert and academic members as well, such as nurses, counsellors and public policy experts. I will provide a link to these articles in the forum where this podcast is posted. In the forum, I will also give a link to a very interesting letter written by the Task Force for Diagnostic Alternatives, a group of critical psychiatrists and academics working in mental health. The letter is addressed to the committees overseeing the development of both the DSM and similar manuals, such as the International Classification of Disease, or ICD. This letter calls for significant changes in the approach to mental health taken by the DSM and ICD, and in psychiatry generally. The information and videos provided in the forums for this lesson discussed how the DSM categories are generally decided upon by expert opinion, rather than being based on clear and robust scientific evidence. However, as Annette pointed out, we also know that many of these experts have links to the pharmaceutical industry. So here there is a possible source of bias, because we need to consider whether experts with these ties to the pharmaceutical industry can make unbiased decisions about diagnostic categories that are so closely linked with targeted medications from pharmaceutical companies. The pharmaceutical industry spends huge amounts of money employing experts such as medical doctors, psychiatrists and professional academics to advertise and promote specific medications to other medical professionals. However, these so-called drug representatives are known to highlight only the positives of the different medications rather than giving a balanced opinion of their potential pros and cons. This is because, ultimately, the job of these drug representatives is to increase the sales and use of the pharmaceutical company's products. Evidence suggests that talks from drug reps at doctor surgeries and other medical settings does lead to increased use of the advertised medication over other medications, particularly for newly released medications. 
However, if these drugs are as effective as a drug reps say they are, then could we not argue that this advertising is beneficial to patients? On one hand, this is possible. But on the other hand, we must consider that much of the evidence we have for the idea that specific medications treat specific diagnoses is highly biased because the majority of this research is directly funded by the pharmaceutical industry. This means that the research analysis and conclusions tend to be very biased towards the goals of the pharmaceutical industry, that is, to sell more of their products. Indeed, in the UK, pharmaceutical companies only need to provide evidence from two clinical trials showing that their product performs better than a placebo or a rival product. The number of negative trials showing that the product does not perform better than a placebo or a rival product are not taken into consideration. Therefore, the true balance of evidence is not really considered. I discuss some of these issues in live session four, so please do go and watch the recording for that session if you're interested in these topics. There are also links in the slides of session four to further reading on these topics. To find out more about these issues, you can read chapters 8, 9 and 10 of the book Cracked by Dr Davies, the book I recommended earlier in this podcast. I will also post some other resources in the forums alongside this podcast. So that's all for this week's episode. Next week on IDAP, in Lesson 7, we'll explore different approaches to abnormality. In next week's podcast, I'll discuss some more ideas about and potential issues with defining abnormality and whether mental health can be culturally relative. That's all for this week's update. All resources I've discussed here will be posted along with the podcast link to the relevant lesson discussion forum. Thank you for listening.